Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture is found in 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I may test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is God's word. Bring in our study of Second Corinthians. Excuse me? Oh, Kids' Journey, yes. Uh, those who are <laughs> going down to Kids' Journey this time may uh, proceed. So we're continuing our study in 2 Corinthians, and if you want to follow in your Bibles, they were in chapter 2, uh, in the Pew Bibles, that's page 964. God is holy and forgiving. He's morally pure and filled with grace. And we see that perfect balance in Jesus Christ. And though we're made in God's image, we struggle in finding a balance between holiness and grace. Some of us gravitate toward holiness and dismiss grace. Others of us gravitate toward grace and dismiss holiness. And it, it seems it's on every level. It's on the societal level, personal level, relational level, and even in the church. On a societal level, we reject the holiness of God by usurping his moral authority and sitting on his throne determining for ourselves what's right and wrong, or by denying that there is even sin. On the other hand, we, we dismiss God's grace when we believe that we can have a relationship with God by earning it through our good works, our philanthropy, or our religious activities. On a personal level, we reject God's holiness when we deny, excuse, or justify our sins. And we dismiss God's grace when we fail to forgive ourselves. On a relational level, we diminish God's holiness by not holding one another accountable for not confronting sin in loved ones, sins that's harmful to them or harmful to others. Or we dismiss God's grace 
by holding their, their sin against them and never letting it go, never being able to forgive. And on a church level, we minimize the holiness of God when we fail to discipline egregious, hurtful, divisive, persistent sin. And we diminish God's grace when after we discipline somebody, we're glad that that person is out of the church without ever considering the hard work it would be for restoration. We need to find the right balance between holiness and grace on every level. The balance that Jesus Christ lived out. Let's pray. Our Father, only your spirit can correct this wrong that's in each of us and wrong in our society and wrong in our church. And so we ask that, that you use your word this morning as a mirror. Lord, use it as a mirror to me and use it as a mirror to each of us so that we might see where we fall short and then cling to your spirit and your word for transformation. In his name we pray, amen. So while this morning's passage gives us a picture of the balance between grace and holiness, it does so on a church level. But what we learn, we can also apply personally and in our relationships. Like Jesus, Paul found that perfect balance. And we're going to see it in the passage by first looking at holiness, then grace, and then hearing Paul's warning about not getting the balance right. We start with holiness. As Travis and I have both noted, the Corinthians church was riddled with immorality, divisions, pettiness, social snobbery, and idolatry. Their disregard for holiness was so great that some of the men were visiting temple prostitutes. They were so desensitized to sin that they didn't bat an eye at their, one of their own sleeping with his stepmother. Paul confronted their sin in 1 Corinthians, including an admonition to discipline the wayward brother. The Corinthians apparently took Paul's letter to heart since none of these issues are revisited in 2 Corinthians. They responded to God's call to holiness. However, they struggled with grace. We open with verse 4 through 6. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused pain, if not to me, by some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So Paul's opening words in verse 4 spoke of his painful letter that he wrote. And of course, they had a positive response. Then he talked about the individual who was causing pain to himself and to the church. And we can read between the lines that 
Paul called them to discipline someone in their church. They did. The majority of the congregation punished this man. They most likely banished him relationally and excluded him from their spiritual community. Now, Paul didn't identify the person and, or the sin that caused the pain, so it's led to a lot of conjecture among commentators. Over the centuries, most Christians believed that this was the same man described in 1 Corinthians 5. And I read, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. Paul was passionate about God's holiness. He was passionate about the church being a model of that holiness. He knew that a church that tolerated such egregious sin would fail to be a light to their community and to the world. Instead, such a church would cast a dark shadow over the name of Christ. Whether or not this adulterer is the person Paul's now referencing, we can infer from verse 6 that the church did discipline this individual since it says punishment is now being done by the church. That punishment's enough. So they must have cast out this adulterer. Uh, and that's the thought of the, the traditional thought. The consensus of recent scholarship identifies this person as someone else, as someone who is an opponent of Paul, who rallied people against Paul and incited them to question Paul's apostolic authority. And they point to verse 5 where it says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it to me, not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So the scholars say that Paul's disavowal of pain shows that most people expected that he was pained by this, that he was impacted by the sin of this individual. That wasn't necessarily the case regarding the man in 1 Corinthians 5. How would that impact him personally? So they conclude, Paul must have been disparaged. He must have been personally attacked, even if he tries to disregard the pain of that. Regardless, Paul's focus was on the congregation's pain as a result of the division that this person incited. He was concerned with how the testimony of the church was being tarnished. He was concerned with God's holiness. So whoever this individual is, Paul needed the church to discipline him. Paul was adamant about confronting sin, sin that disrupted Christ's church, and he needed to see the church unite with him on that matter, and we see they did in verse 9. For this is why I wrote that I might test you 
and know that you are obedient in everything. They passed the test. They disciplined him. The Corinthians understood the centrality of God's holiness and their need to reflect that holiness in their lives and in the church. You know, today most churches avoid church discipline. It's viewed as harsh and unloving. In reality, the confrontation of sin in the Christian community is an expression of love towards God and even toward the person being disciplined. We see this in verse 4. Let's go back to verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul wrote the painful letter confronting sin out of love. Church discipline must come from an empathetic heart of love. Like a surgeon's scalpel, it causes pain. But that's not the purpose of spiritual surgery. Its purpose is to remove the cancer of sin, causing harm to that person, to others, and to the church. Every confrontation must be loving. It has to have the same heart that Paul had. He was afflicted, anguished, shed many tears when he addressed the issues of sin. He knew the confrontation would cause pain, and he felt their pain. He didn't seat himself high on a lofty throne above anyone because he knew he was no better than they He wrote this in 1 Timothy 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Confrontation or church discipline must have at the very heart of it a love for Christ and a love for the person being addressed. Jesus was captured by the holiness of God. He judged sin. And he also taught us how to judge in the Sermon on the Mount in these words. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's the log that's in our eye? You know, I used to think the log was my personal sin. But I came to realize the log is my motivation for judging. See, I've judged out of a sense, out of self-centeredness. I judge, and when I judge, I feel superior. I've judged out of a sense of self-righteousness. Look how holy I am that I am judging the sins of others. I've judged to be accepted by others 
I've judged people because others are expecting pastor judge that, speak to that sin. That may be a right action, but it's the wrong motivation. I need to get that log out of my eye. I need to come to the gospel of Jesus Christ and be cleansed so that what I speak, I speak not my judgment, but I speak the judgment of Jesus. When I speak, I speak not out of my heart, but I speak out of the heart of compassion that Jesus has. We need to take the log out of our eye even as we defend God's holiness. We need to challenge sin in the lives of people we love appropriately. And we need to be quick to forgive when they repent. A church needs to confront egregious sin and sin that divides the church and be vigilant to forgive and open our arms to anyone who repents. We need to be passionate about holiness and grace. The Corinthians didn't have this balance. First Corinthians addressed their dismissal of holiness. They responded and they sought holiness. Our passage addresses their dismissal of grace. Their discipline of this wayward brother was unrelenting even after he confessed his sin and repented. Paul called them to respond with grace. Grace. Verses 6 through 8. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough so that we should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The Corinthian church acted on Paul's admonishment to discipline this individual, and they did so in a legalistic and self-righteous way. They expelled him from the church, disassociated themselves from him, and probably did much more. When the man repented, they kept the pressure on. They wouldn't allow him back into their fellowship. There was no forgiveness, no love, no compassion, and that left the man with no hope. Paul wanted to rescue him so that he wouldn't be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul wanted to rescue the Corinthians from hardened faith devoid of grace. We hear it in his plea. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Note these features of grace in this passage. Forgiveness, Comfort and love. You know, before I studied this passage, if you asked me uh, how I or the church should respond if someone who sinned against us repented, I would have said, forgive them, let them back into the community. That's not the extent of grace. There's more to it. It says, comfort them. The word translated comfort means to come alongside. We come alongside people by comforting, by encouraging, and by exhorting. I think each of these is what this brother needed. 
he felt the pain of being excluded from the community. And if he was not accepted by the community, he must have imagined that God would not accept him. He needed to be comforted, turn to the cross, and be taught and shared with that he is forgiven by God because of what Jesus Christ did. He needed to be reminded of that. He needed to be encouraged. He needed someone to come alongside him and help him reboot his walk with Jesus Christ. And he would need exhortation, exhortation. He needed to overcome the sin that harmed him, the church, and harmed others. You know, Chuck Swindoll wrote about restoration. He said, A young man once described going astray from God, like who is at the sea in deep water, deep trouble, and all of his friends were on the shoreline hurling biblical accusations at him about justice, penalty, and wrong. But there was one Christian brother who actually swam out to me and would not let me go. I fought him, but he pushed aside my fighting. He grasped me, put a life jacket around me, and took me to shore. By the grace of God, he was the reason I was restored. He wouldn't let me go. Paul asked the Corinthians, jump in and rescue this man who was nearly overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Forgive, comfort, reaffirm love. It's not enough to let a repentant brother back into the church. He needed to feel the love of the church. Somebody who has sinned against you needs more than just forgiveness, needs to feel your love. Paul pulled out all the stops in order to get the Corinthians to give grace. He didn't want them withholding forgiveness on his account. See, very often we're able to forgive someone who sins against us, but it's much harder for us to forgive somebody who sinned against somebody we love. He didn't want that to be the case for the Corinthians, so he wrote, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Let's break that down. So at first he says, anyone whom I forgive, whom you forgive, I also forgive. He's saying, I am ready to forgive. I will unite with you in any declaration of forgiveness. Don't withhold it on my account. Then he says, indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything... What he's saying here is, I don't feel personally attacked. I mean, I, I don't hold it against the person. So I don't even feel I was sinned against. I feel the church was sinned against. But, but if you feel I was attacked, and if you feel, excuse me, if you feel that, that the sin was against me, well, I've forgiven it. I've forgiven anything. And then his words, it's been for your sake. He's saying in this, it's not about me. 
Don't even consider me. It's about you. It's for your sake. Your sake to line up with the grace of Jesus Christ. Your sake to bring the church into unity. It's your sake to be a light, a testimony of God's grace to the world. But the most important words of all, he says, are these last ones. In the presence of Christ. Are you struggling someone, excuse me, are you struggling to forgive someone? You may want to forgive, but the hurt is caused by their sin, has an unrelenting grip on you. You might try to let go, but the pain keeps coming back, crashing upon you like wave after wave. You can't keep your thoughts from going back to the past, knowing there's no excuse for the sin against you. The person doesn't doesn't deserve forgiveness. You can never trust them again. You're living in the presence of the past, not in the presence of Jesus. When we come into his presence, we can't help to hear his plea, Father, forgive them. Even though those around the cross derided Jesus, disparaged him, mocked his claims, even though they beat him, crowned him with thorns and drove nails into his hands and feet, he prayed, Father, forgive them. When we're in the presence of Jesus, we should hear him say, I died for those sins you won't forgive. What does my sacrifice really mean to you? You know, early in my ministry, I gave a sermon in a small church that was really unfamiliar with the gospel. And afterwards, one of the uh, few believers there uh, came to me and said, you know, our friend was moved by your message and wants to accept Christ as her savior, but she doesn't feel worthy. Can you talk to her? I went in and I found her sitting by herself in a pew. She told me she couldn't accept Jesus because she couldn't bring herself to forgive her siblings. The hurt was too great. I told her, you've got it backwards. You won't be able to forgive until you receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ yourself. She prayed to accept Christ. The next week, she came back with a vibrant glow about her. She'd forgiven her siblings, and she found peace and joy. She came into the presence of Jesus, and then she couldn't help but forgive. We need to do the same with our own personal sin. When we live in the light of God's holiness, we feel the weight of sin. We've hurt others with our sin. We hold it against ourselves. We can't let it go. We ruminate about the consequences of our sin and the lives of others. We beat ourselves up. We struggle to forgive ourselves because we feel we must pay the price. Enter into the presence of Jesus who paid the price so that we don't have to. He came to save sinners even chief sinners.
Is our sin so grace, great that it's greater than God's grace? Are we saying, Jesus, uh, you didn't do enough when you were tortured on the cross. There's, there's more to pay, and I have to pay it. What an affront to Jesus, to what he endured on the cross. We may reject his forgiveness when we live in the presence of the past, but we can't help bask in the, his grace when we live in the presence of Jesus and his cross. Holiness, grace. If we don't find the balance, Satan will have a field day with us and with the church. Paul gave a stark warning about holiness in 1 Corinthians. Here he gives a stark warning regarding grace. We must forgive the repentance, verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by the devil, by Satan, we're not ignorant of his designs. Satan would love to nullify the grace of the cross. He's always trying to thwart the cross. Each of Satan's first temptations in the of Jesus in the wilderness was de designed to deter Jesus from going to the cross. When Jesus referenced his cross before the disciples, predicting that he would suffer and die at the hands of his enemies and then rise, Peter rebuked him and said, this will never happen to you. Jesus' response wasn't to say, Peter, he rebuked Satan. Satan was speaking through Peter in order to derail Jesus' journey to the cross. When Satan's plan was foiled, he attempted to silence the disciples so that they wouldn't be preaching the message of forgiveness. Jesus warned Peter, Satan's demanded to sift you like wheat. And he did the same with all the disciples as they cowered after the crucifixion. If he could silence them, the message of the gospel would go to the grave with them. But the disciples were emboldened after the resurrection and after they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they preached the gospel of grace to the whole world. So how could Satan stop it now? He could stop it through us not giving grace. By getting Christians to not apply grace to themselves, and to not forgive others. If we don't forgive others, why would anyone believe that God would really forgive them? If we don't forgive ourselves, why would people believe our message that Christ died for our sins? Satan couldn't stop Jesus from sacrificing himself. Satan couldn't thwart the spread of the gospel through the disciples, but he can neuter the gospel if we fail to forgive. If we're not people of grace, why would anyone think God is a God of grace? On the other hand, the light of God's grace can shine through those who forgive supernaturally. 
On June 17, 2015, a white supremacist named Dylan Roof entered Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He slid into a pew alongside a small group that had gathered for prayer. He engaged in their conversation as they were about to pray. He pulled out a revolver, spewed racial slurs, and began shooting, reportedly saying, Y'all want something to pray about? I'll give you something to pray about. He murdered nine congregants, including the pastor and 59-year-old Myra Thompson, the wife of Reverend Anthony Thompson. Yesterday, in remembering the grace-filled heart of Martin Luther King, one of the news channels interviewed Reverend Thompson, author of a book called, uh, entitled Called to Forgive. And they asked him to explain how he could forgive that mass murderer. And here's what he said. It wasn't easy for me to forgive for killing my wife and eight other people at Emanuel AME Church. I struggled with that for 48 hours. And after 48 hours, going to the bond hearing, just hearing the Lord convict my heart, reminding me that I'm a sinner just like Dylan, and that he died for Dylan as well as he died for me. I just automatically began to think about my past and some things I did. And after all this registered, I just, moved by the Holy Spirit, said, Son, I forgive you. My family forgives you. We'd like you to take the opportunity to repent, confess. Repent and give your life to the one who means the most, Christ. Because right now, it'll change your ways. It'll change your attitude. Because right now, you're in a lot of trouble. But if you do that, everything will be okay. This is where peace comes in. This is where I'm able to move forward in my life because immediately after forgiving Dylan, I received a peace like no other. I mean, peace that surpasses understanding is real. I want everyone to know that. And this is how you receive it. Reverend Thompson is the light of God's grace to every broken soul. Early in Jesus' ministry, four men cut a hole through a roof and lowered their paralyzed friend down in front of Jesus so that he might be healed. Jesus saw their faith and declared, Son, your sins are forgiven. These words caused quite a stir. Jesus was speaking blasphemy, for how can anyone but God dare to forgive sins? Jesus' words continue to cause a stir today because many people can't believe that a man could die for the sins of the world. It shouldn't cause a stir among Christians because while Jesus was a man, he was also, he is also God. Because he was a man, he could stand in our place as our substitute. 
as God, as an infinite God, he could die for an infinite number of people. And he has. If you don't know him, receive him as your Savior. Receive his grace and his forgiveness and find peace with him and peace with yourself. If you have received him, don't negate what he accomplished on the cross by withholding forgiveness from yourself or from anyone else who repents. Be holy as God is holy. Be grace-filled as God is grace-filled. Give yourselves and others grace when we fall short of God's glory. And then allow the wonders of that grace to draw us deeper into a love relationship so that we might walk in his footsteps and be transformed into his image. He said, the one who is forgiven much loves much. And that love leads to our transformation. The God who died for Reverend Thompson has died for each of us. Spread the news of God's incomprehensible grace by our words and by our actions. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ, what he endured for us. May we never diminish that in our lives. May we always find incredible peace by going into the presence of Jesus, coming to the foot of the cross, hearing his cry, it is finished. Receive that forgiveness and be so taken by that we can't help but share it to a world that is often in denial of God's holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.